Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. So I here am with my next segment with my good friend and author, Jonathan Neville, who has uh, really been gracious to spend this time with this outsider who, you know, just kind of jumps into his world and uh, wants to have a conversation with him about the, what we talked about with the Heartland model, which is really interesting. And uh, but this, the thing that, you know, really intrigued me uh, watching you on Rod Meldrum's uh, podcast was uh, I kind of had this stereotype in my mind, okay? So, like, I try to look at different groups of the Restoration and say, well, what is the evangelical or Protestant equivalent of, the, of what we're looking at? So, like, when I look at the Community of Christ, I think, well, they're liberal Methodists. They just... That's what they are. <laughs> and I think they'd probably be cool with that. I'm not making light of it. And then I right. look at other groups and say, well, they're more like, a, you know, uh, like a mainline, per, you know, community Christ kind of mainline as, as well. And then some others would be viewed as more evangelical types. And then others would be more like literal, uh, conservative, like. And so I kind of look at like a lot of the people who are part of the heartland movement, as I like to call it, because I do consider it a movement, um, mm -hmm. is uh, more of the conservative people who take scripture literally, right? Mm -hmm. right. And, and so um, as I was watching Rod's uh, podcast, I realized that there's a little bit more sophistication going on than I was giving you credit for. I kind of think of more of the narrow-minded fundamentalist literalists in our camp. Right. But then when I started encountering uh, what you, you were proposing, which was um, kind of accepting the modern scholarship uh, that, okay, the 19th century is going to intrude on the text and the 18th century and different ideas are going to intrude in the text. That was always the argument that people would say against the Book of Mormon. They'd right. say, aha, the acronyms and ah, it was made up and this is the milieu that he grew, yeah. you know, and he was just taking all this stuff and throwing it in there and the mishmash and everything like that. But you kind of turned that whole thing on its head <laughs> because you um, actually went at it a different approach because you said, okay, what if... Joseph, and we're going to get into the translation process a little bit, but I think it's important we okay. jump off here. What if Joseph Smith was a translator? Mm -hmm. And what do translators do? Translators right. are not just dict taking dictation and writing it down. Right. They're actually uh, the person who's writing scripture. So this goes for Old Testament writers, New Testament writers. They are products of their time and place. Mm -hmm. and, and they only know about their time and place that's the, because that's their reality. So a right. lot of what they understand is going to make it into it. For instance, if one looks at uh, medieval paintings or Renaissance paintings of biblical scenes, guess what? It's all people dressed up like they were European. Exactly. The yeah. armor and everything like that, that's how they visualize it because that's the world that they lived in. Well, the translators are doing a similar process. So right. basically what you're saying is, is, yeah, there is 19th century stuff. And in specific, you found some fascinating things when you decided to you were looking at like okay we know that there's some bibles there's quotes from the bible in the in the book of mormon and this is you know basically you could kind of document where you think some stuff was coming from especially the bible so but then you found there's a lot of stuff that's not in the bible a lot of phrases right. and ideas that are not in the bible and you mm -hmm. thought well where did these come from and what did you find well that's a good introduction to the whole idea part of let me just explain a little bit more because i was I was skeptical of this idea that Joseph didn't really translate the plates. And that's kind of become the, um, I hate to say the dogma or the mantra, but that's what a lot of scholars think that he just read off the stone, right? 
And so I thought, well, he said he translated. He said he copied characters and translated them. So there would have to be an indication in the text that that's what he did. And so I thought, um, I, one of the things that prompted this, there was a, a scholar down at the uh, BYU studies who made a list of a few of the non-biblical terms that are in the Book of Mormon that were long sophisticated words. And he said, Joseph Smith was too ignorant to know these words. Therefore they had to appear on the stone. He had to read them off the stone. And I thought, well, that seems like a backwards approach to just assume he was ignorant. And so I, I made a list of, as I recall, is around 700 words in the Book of Mormon that are non-biblical. So he couldn't have gotten them from the King James Version. And I've since expanded that to several thousand words and, and phrases. And so I thought, well, where would Joseph have learned these? So I started using Google engrams to try to find the source of, of these words and phrases. And a lot of them came from the Palmyra Register, which was a newspaper in Palmyra in 1818, 1823, that time frame. And apparently Joseph went to that uh, bookstore every week to get the newspaper for his father. And so he had a hold of the newspaper. I assume they read the newspaper. In fact, there, I found a notice in the newspaper that Joseph Smith Sr. had not paid his bill for the newspaper. So <laughs> we knew they were getting it, even if they weren't paying for it. But there were a lot of, that was only a small percentage of these non-biblical terms and phrases. But I kept getting a hit on um, what was Jonathan Edwards, basically. And I knew a little bit about Jonathan Edwards. My middle name is actually Edwards, so I'm Jonathan Edward, you know. My mom is from Connecticut, and so I don't know if she named me after him, but she may have. She's passed away, so I can't ask. But the point is that I, I was curious, well, how would Joseph Smith have gotten a hold of Jonathan Edwards? And I went through the list of books that were on sale in the Palmyra bookstore, and one of them was Edwards' eight volumes. I hadn't made the connection. But I ended up uh, looking at the Yale uh, University. They digitized all the works of Jonathan Edwards. But there were some things in there that I couldn't find that were in this eight-volume set. Well, I should mention, when I saw this eight-volume set, I went on eBay, and I purchased an 1808 set of this, this eight volumes. So it was the actual, you know, 200-year-old um, books, because I wanted to see the original books. And I also got a copy of it on Amazon, on, on my Kindle, but I found errors in the Amazon transcription. And I've also found errors in the Yale library where they did not digitize this eight-volume set, so they're missing some of the material. So in the process of doing all this, though, whenever I would come up with a word or phrase, non-biblical word or phrase in the Book of Mormon, I would almost inevitably find it in Jonathan Edwards or James Hervey, which is, we could talk about him in a minute if you want, but predominantly Jonathan Edwards. And so I thought, well, why would Joseph Smith have been reading Jonathan Edwards? <laughs> An eight volume set, but it was right there where he went every week. So he had easy access to it. I don't, I'm, if, if I'm digressing, let me know. I'm just trying to give you as much background. I'll just keep talking until you tell me to stop. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I thought, the, the narrative was that Joseph Smith was this ignorant farm boy, and the Lord just wrote on his mind like a blank slate by reading the, uh, the words that appeared on the seer stone. That's what we're hearing today. But Joseph Smith himself said that when he got the, the plates, finally, he copied the characters and translated the characters. That's not reading words off a stone, right? That's, that's how any linguist or scholar would learn a language, by copying the characters and learning them. Now, he said he learned them by means of the Urim and Thummim. We can talk about that in a little while if you want. 
But I, I started thinking, well, where is the evidence that Joseph Smith had read um, the writings of Jonathan Edwards or other Christian scholars? And there's a very interesting interview he did in, I don't remember the year, it was around 1833 to 35 or maybe 36, but someone came to visit him and asked him to tell him about the restoration of the gospel. And he started at the age of six, he said. You know, the, the common narrative is everything started with the first vision, but that was in the teens. So why did he start at age six? And the reason in my view at this point is he had the leg surgery, he was laid up for three years. What was he going to do? He wasn't out farming. He could just, all, all he could do was read. And I, I won't get into all the details, but I traced some of the reading materials that were in Massachusetts. After he had the surgery, his uncle took him to Massachusetts by the seashore to recover. And I, I looked at what was the reading material for young men in that area. And sure enough, it's Book of Mormon language right there. And then when, by the time he got to Palmyra and he was had access to the works of Jonathan Edwards and James Hervey and several others. And then he said that in his 1832 history, he said he had an intimate acquaintance with those of different denominations. That's always been interpreted to mean the preachers in the area. And I, I don't think that's what he meant at all. First of all, there's no indication he had an intimate acquaintance with them, right? He had a, a run-in with one Methodist preacher that he mentioned, and that was it. So how would he have an intimate acquaintance? if it wasn't through reading their books. And so this all led to me concluding that Joseph Smith actually did translate the Book of Mormon using his own language, the words and concepts that were in his head. And, and I've gotten to the point now where I can give you some really cool specific examples in a minute if you want, but I've gotten to the point now when I hear someone in a general conference talk even, or sacrament meeting, and they quote a scripture, I'll think, yeah, okay, I know that was from Jonathan Edwards, and here's the context of it. <laughs> it's awesome, and it happens every single time. And so, and it's the other fascinating thing about this whole thing is I'm able to show that when, like Royal Skousen, who's the scholar that studies the Book of Mormon the most, he, he wrote a whole book on King James quotations in the Book of Mormon. And his overall assumption was that it's only from the King James Bible. And there's a few examples in there where he shows some discrepancies between the King James and the uh, Book of Mormon, not, not like in the Isaiah passages, but in, when he calls it blending, where there's different biblical passages that are blended into a Book of Mormon verse, he'll point out that there's a few discrepancies between those and the King James version. But his basic assumption, in my view, was flawed. Because, yeah, there's definitely biblical information and passages and quotations in the Book of Mormon, but those examples of discrepancies or disparities are right out of Jonathan Edwards, because Jonathan Edwards had a pattern of often either paraphrasing or misquoting the Bible, <laughs> and those paraphrases and misquotes show up in the Book of Mormon. It's just really awesome. So yeah. that's, that's a long answer, but no, it is. no, I appreciate that because I think people need the, the context of where you're coming from, because first of all, you know, there might be a lot of people now who don't even know who Jonathan Edwards is anymore. Right. But at the time, he was a very well-known theologian mm -hmm. and preacher. I mean, he, he gave the most famous sermon um, in the history <laughs> of the, the country. Uh, 
you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God, which, by the way, I went to a Christian high school and my English teacher asked me to, we went into the church sanctuary, put me in robes and asked me to give the sermon. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes. You know what? You know what's that other thing is funny about that. There's um, Terrell Givens and um, Stephen, um, editor of BYU Studies. I can't think of his name right now, but they both have quoted that in their latest books. And it, it exasperates me because it's like that's a stereotype of Jonathan Edwards. And it's so not characteristic of everything else he did. But I've actually been to the place in Connecticut where he gave that sermon. There's a marker there because the church is no longer there, but there's a stone with a marker. And so I, I recognize the power that that image that he created has and its endurance, but it is not what he represents. I mean, when, when he died, just as he was dying, he told his daughter to tell his wife that they would be together forever. So he believed in eternal marriage. And, and he was really anticipating, in my view, the restoration of the gospel. And, and I show that in lots of different ways. Hmm. Oh, that's very interesting. I, and, if you, and are you going to be, that, that's all part of your book, right? You're, yeah, you're, well, okay. that's all in there. So yeah. I, don't, I don't have the advantage of having the book, but by the time this interview airs, it will probably be closer to the time that the book will be released. Yeah. Uh, so that's very exciting. But yeah, when I, when I, when I heard about this, I thought, we gotta, we got to talk about this because I think this is really, really like groundbreaking stuff. Because you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're accepting all the scholarship that's out there, but then you're just basically saying, like, listen, this is why this matters. Uh, this w- obviously, these quotes would make it in there. I think the more, well, I think the most famous, one of the more famous Book of Mormon Bible verses is the, uh, the natural man is an enemy to God. Right. All right. So I should just talk a little bit about that. Okay. That's, that's, a, that's one of my favorite examples because, you know, Paul talked about the natural man. And there's discussion of the enemy to God, but not anywhere near proximity in the Bible. King Benjamin said the natural man is an enemy to God. So I thought, well, that should be a phrase I could find, right? And it turns out that in this eight-volume set of Jonathan Edwards, he had an entire sermon titled Natural Men are God's Enemies. And he goes through in a lot of detail to explain how the natural man is an enemy to God. In the Book of Mormon, it never explains that. It just uses a phrase. And then it says how to overcome the natural man. But it never explains how the natural man is an enemy of God. And it turns out that that verse is one of the top 10 Book of Mormon verses quoted in LDS General Conference history. And there's been articles and books written about what this means. But nobody looked at what Jonathan Edwards said. And when you read Jonathan Edwards' explanation of it, it it fits perfectly with the Book of Mormon. So this is the, the simple analogy I give is if you read the Book of Mormon, It talks about the law of Moses, but it never explains the law of Moses. You have to go to the Bible to understand the law of Moses. Mm -hmm. So when you understand a a phrase like natural man is an enemy to God, you see that in there and everybody speculates about what it means because they don't know the origin of it. But if you know the origin of it, you go back to Jonathan Edwards, you read this, then you go, okay, now there's no need for all this speculation and, and, you know, pontificating about what that verse means because we know where it came from. And I have many, many examples of that. Jonathan, I, you know, in the evangelical community, we've been doing study Bibles and study commentaries for a very, very long time. It almost sounds to me like there should be a Book of Mormon study that in- integrates all the contexts, like would have Jonathan Edwards' yeah. context, 
it almost sounds like maybe that's maybe a direction you may want to go or inspire somebody to go because to me yeah. i think that would really enlighten the the, the book to have this outside stuff and, and embrace it yeah and and make totally. it part of the the make it part of the narrative yeah and let me just tell you one of the i originally planned to publish this book two years ago because I had you know, a few hundred pages of notes and I thought, okay, my publisher says never publish anything longer than 300 pages. And I said, well, I'll try to condense it down. But now I have two or 3000 pages of notes on all this stuff. And it's, it's just unwieldy. So I'm trying to condense it down to the, the main concepts. In fact, even I have this book on the translation I mentioned earlier, a man that can translate. I have a chapter in here that kind of introduces the Jonathan Edwards concept, but not in much detail at all. And so you could do a, a series of commentaries just based and not only Jonathan Edwards, but also James Hervey. And there's a couple of others. Yeah, talk about James. Just I, you'd mentioned him. I, I don't know anything James about Hervey. Yeah. OK, he was he was another uh, popular uh, theologian. He was more of a um, I, I wouldn't characterize him so much as a theologian like Jonathan Edwards, but more of an inspirational Christian writer. Okay. And so a lot of the things that Joseph Smith wrote about that, that are kind of, um, how would I phrase it, um, more inspirational, involving nature, you know, the, the sun rolling on the wings and all that kind of language and the Doctrine and Covenants. Oh, I should mention also, it's not just the Book of Mormon, it's the whole Doctrine and Covenants too that I'm doing. And all of Joseph's history, like I've, I've completely annotated that 1832 history that he wrote by hand every phrase I can identify where it came from. And it, it's so cool. I mean, <laughs> I get really excited about this. But I've had, you know, my when I've talked about this with LDS audiences, they've always been a little reticent because they're saying, well, that sounds like the evangelical saying that he just copied the Book of Mormon, right? That's why I have to always come back to say, look, a translator is using the language in his mind. And the Doctrine and Covenants section one, the Lord said he gave commandments after the manner of their language. So there, any evidence of composition is also evidence of translation. That's a really important point that everybody seems to have overlooked. And so I think um, it's important for LDS audiences to understand that this is a faithful approach that I'm providing. And for me, it's exciting. It, it like opens the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. Another one of my favorite examples is in the Doctrine and Covenants, I think, section 18, it says, remember the worth of souls is great. Well, what's he remembering? And I have the source where it taught that the worth of souls is great. It's, a, it's another Christian author that Joseph had access to. And so I can see Joseph reading, oh, the worth of souls is great. And then the Lord is having a conversation with him saying, remember the worth of souls is great. It, it didn't originate there. And, and throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, it's the same. So for me, it's, it's exciting because I've always felt like, the, or at least not always maybe, but, but once I had this realization, I've understood that the Book of Mormon belongs to the whole world. You don't have to be a member of any church to appreciate the Book of Mormon. And I think Jonathan Edwards was really kind of anticipating the Book of Mormon. And I can, I'll give you two examples of that if you want. You want to hear that? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of discussion about uh, chiasmus and Hebrew parallelisms. Jonathan Edwards wrote quite a bit about, um, he didn't use the term chiasmus, but he wrote about Hebrew parallelisms, and he incorporated that in his writings. He was very careful to use the parallel structures that he had learned from the Bible. And 
And those, of course, show up in the Book of Mormon as well and in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now we call it chiasmus, which is kind of a later term for it. But the Hebrew parallelism is, is really common. Uh, the other was um, he, when he talks, Book of Mormon talks about types and shadows. And Jonathan Edwards talked about that a lot in the same way. It's, it's really remarkable. And so I see this whole thing as Joseph Smith from a young age when he had his leg surgery. I think that's why he had the leg surgery, you know, in terms of the Lord intervening there. He was, um, he, I guess, uh, open or searching for religious answers. And when you read about his, um, in his 1832 history, he was concerned for the welfare of his soul and he was convicted of his sins. And it was this, this second awakening at that point, but Jonathan Edwards was part of the first awakening that provoked those concerns in, in his mind and in his soul. And that's why he had an intimate acquaintance with all these people of different denominations. So once we understand that, then for Christians in general, they've, they've kind of tended to see the Book of Mormon as separate from the Bible. Maybe a fraud, maybe a pious parable, whatever. I see it as sort of a um, completion or fulfillment of the Bible. And that's and, and something that was anticipated, actually, by people such as Jonathan Edwards, who, who talked about the future glorious state of the church. And they talked about um, how, how the word of the Lord would be prevailed throughout the world and all these kind of things. And that's what the Book of Mormon is doing. The problem is, I, I think historically, the problem has become or has gotten to devolve to the point today where we use the Book of Mormon as a missionary tool. And that turns Christians off. Because if you go to a Christian and say, if you read this book and believe it's true, then you have to join our church. They're not going to read the book or they're going to look for ways to attack it. I had a, an experience with a Christian, really great guy. We've become really good friends. And he said, yeah, I know the missionaries always told me to pray about this and, and I'd get a good feeling about it. But of course I would because it contains so much of the Bible. <laughs> he says, that tells me that the the Bible parts of the Book of Mormon are true. I have a spiritual witness of that, but it doesn't say anything about the rest of the Book of Mormon. And that, so that's an example of poor apologetics, I think, when this whole idea that if you pray about the Book of Mormon and you get a strong feeling that it's true, you have to join the church. I, I don't think that was ever the intent. In fact, even in the title page, it didn't say that. It says nothing about joining any church. It says to bring people to Christ. And the church wasn't even founded yet. Um, well, that, that for sure. <laughs> so that kind of tells you the priority yeah. of it, right? Right. And one can make that argument. Now, so generally speaking, I just want to talk to like the more Orthodox Mormons out there. You know, uh, yeah. I think it's important that you understand that what Jonathan is doing is he's, he's coming up with a way of explaining the Book of Mormon in a uh, scholarly sense, in an intellectual sense that actually, I think, I, th I think some evangelicals, it might actually make sense to them. So mm -hmm. I think it's important. So, so if you're reluctant to embrace his thesis, don't, because I think the direction he's going is probably the, the direction that it, it's going to end up going, because I think, I, I think this is really brilliant stuff you got here, and I'm very excited to talk to you about it. So that's on one hand. And then I want to talk about the pushback you're going to get. Okay, you're going sure. to get pushback from some mm -hmm. of the uh, other scholars that advocate, for instance, the... Um, the, their, their belief is that the translation process was primarily done via the uh, seer stone. Right. Now we have the um, gospel topics essays. Uh, 
which mm -hmm. is uh, has the imprint, you know, imprint of the of the church. You know, I mean, the, right. it is part of an official uh, church just at, um, on their website and everything like that. And we yep. have, um, uh, let's see, we have the that, and we also have the fact that um, many people, many BYU scholars and just regular folk have, are starting to accept the model of the seer stone. Yeah. But I also, I also want to just say one thing um, that kind of strikes me, and I want you to answer this and you can talk about the seer stone and the whole thing is that there's a, there's a, there's a stunning image of president Nelson holding mm -hmm. a hat that, um, and, and basically looking into it. Um, some take that as a tacit endorsement of the, uh, seer stone, um, translation process. So I just want you to address that and talk about the seer stone. Okay. That takes, I, I hope I can frame it. So it's clear. So I, I completely accept the David Whitmer's explanation of, of what I call a demonstration of the stone in the hat. So, and, and just so people may not be aware of this, there's, there's a variety of um, descriptions of the translation. There's Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery who always said and exclusively said that Joseph translated the place with the Urim and Thummim that came with the plates. Then there's uh, statements from David Whitmer, Emma Smith, and others to the effect that Joseph Smith dictated by staring at a stone that he put into a hat to block out the light. So those two threads are, are alternative explanations were articulated in that 1834 book, Mormonism Unveiled. And so if that, that was in 1834. So this all started at an early stage in the church's history. But it was re in response to that book that Oliver Cowdery wrote his letter number one that said, I was there, Joseph translated with the Yerman Thummim, or as the Nephites would call the interpreters. Okay. So in my view, he explicitly rejected the stone and the hat as the translation. And even when he rejoined the church, he emphasized again, he had that little seer stone, the brown seer stone we see pictures of in his pocket when he rejoined the church, but he didn't show it. He said, instead, he said, Joseph translated with the Yerman Thummim. So in my view, Joseph and Oliver were clear that Joseph translated with the Yerman Thummim by means of the Yerman Thummim. In order to reconcile the two accounts, some church historians in, in the Gospel Topics essay kind of makes this uh, claim that they referred to the seer stone as the Yerman Thummim. In other words, they use the same word for the Nephite interpreters and for the seer stone, which I, I don't think is historically viable because right in the Mormonism Unveiled book, they made the distinction between the two. Okay. So, and yet there is a very explicit explanation from David Whitmer. He says there was a table in the downstairs of the Whitmer home. People sat around it. Joseph had his three scribes there, uh, which I think now we can, we can tell was Emma, John and Christian Whitmer, possibly Oliver Cowdery. But anyway, he had the three scribes there and he put his face, a stone in the hat, his face in the hat and dictated and they wrote it down. And he even said that they had to take turns writing because Joseph was uh, dictating so fast, these three scribes. So that was David Whitmer's uh, experience that he spelled out pretty clearly. And I accept that also. I think he was, I don't think he had any reason to lie about that, but it also explains the origin of the stone in the hat theory was that what I call the demonstration in the Whitmer home with the three scribes present. 
If Emma was one of the scribes, I'm, I can show anyway, based on the historical evidence, why I think she is clear that she was. Then when she later said Joseph would translate with his face and hat, well, that was part of the demonstration. Everybody has inferred that she was referring to what happened down in Harmony, but she never said that was what happened in Harmony. She just made the blanket statement. So if she was a scribe in, in Fayette, that also applies or explains why she made that statement. And I'll, I'll come back in a minute if you want to explain why David and, and Emma and others kept focusing on the stone and the hat. But so what I think happened is Joseph used the Urim and Thummim, which he wasn't allowed to let anybody see other than probably Oliver Cowdery because he had the, the authority to translate. Nobody else could see it. So he had to translate behind a screen or a curtain. And then when they went up to Fayette to translate the plates of Nephi, people were bugging him. They had a servant there in the household who threatened to quit if she didn't know what was happening upstairs because these guys would come downstairs and they were glowing. And Mary Whitmer, the mother, said, well, they're doing the work of the Lord. And she said, well, I want to know what it is. Plus, they had lots of their supporters. Everybody wanted to know how he was doing the translation. So what I think, based on the original manuscript, you can kind of see this, that when they got to this part in Second Nephi where it was uh, basically this, um, quoting Isaiah, he realized he could do a demonstration of the process by just reciting Isaiah from memory. So he went downstairs, put the stone in the hat, recited Isaiah. The three scribes wrote it as fast as they could to keep up. And, and you can see here, one of the cool things about this is the normal translation would take from sunrise to sunset. It was, and David Whitmer said it was a laborious process. And scribes would write for several days. Of course, Oliver Cowdery wrote con continuously, he said, without interruption down in harmony. But on this one occasion of the demonstration, he was dictating so fast that he had three scribes and they were getting tired and had to take turns, which is not the normal manner of translation. That's why I, I propose anyway that he was reciting from memory when he was looking at the stone and the hat the reason he would do a demonstration with the stone and the hat was first off he couldn't show either the plates or the urim and thummim to anybody second people there were familiar with that concept as a as a means of either uh, seeing things or receiving revelation or whatever so it was something that they could relate to and i kind of envisioned him saying okay this is the manner in which I do the translation. The interesting thing is nobody there quotes him as saying he was doing a translation. Nobody wrote down the words that he actually said other than the scribes, and we don't have that part of the uh, original manuscript from Second Nephi, so we can't tell for sure who the scribes were. But it's consistent with his lifelong pattern of letting people make inferences. <laughs> and there's lots of examples of that if you want to go over those. So the bottom line here is to answer your question about um, President Nelson. President Nelson was demonstrating the stone and the hat thing, which is consistent with the historical evidence of this demonstration. President Nelson could not demonstrate the Urim and Thummim because we don't have the Urim and Thummim. He couldn't demonstrate the plates because we don't have the actual plates, but he could demonstrate or show in this example you're referring to uh, the stone and the hat demonstration. And that's why I think it's, it's, it's interesting that Oliver Cowdery, who became a lawyer and was kind of very precise in what he said, said Joseph translated with the Urim and Thummim. 
But if this demonstration involved a recitation from memory, it was not a translation. So you can see that what Joseph and Oliver said was literally true. He translated with Urim and Thummim, but it's also true that he did a demonstration with the stone in the hat. Okay, okay. you see the distinction there. So just real quick, I mean, so was the Urim and Thummim, were they those oversized spectacles yeah. that they found? Okay, so yeah. Um, so that's the Urim and Thummim. Now, the narrative that I've heard, and again, you, I've, you understand mm -hmm. that basically my understanding of much of the history of Mormonism from a secular scholarly perspective, I've ignored right. the I, I ignore the anti stuff, but I just want to go like, you know, middle of the road. And sure. uh, from everything I came across is that when when Joseph lost 116 pages, okay, the the interpreters or the Urim and Thummim and the plates were taken away from him. And then mm -hmm. I've, heard, I've heard scholars, and it may have been Dan Vogel, but I could be wrong in this, uh, say that he didn't get the interpreters back or the, the Urim and Thummim. Right. Um, that, and then he started using the stone then. So right. he, used, he used it on the lost part and then used the seer stone for the rest right. of it and then for the small plates. Right. Okay, what do you have to say to that? Okay, well, that narrative comes from two sources. It comes from Emma, who said that effectively. And it comes from uh, David Whitmer relying on what Emma said. And this gets back to the whole issue of why they, they talked about the stone in the hat. So let me explain that. But before I get to that, let me just mention, he Joseph himself said, according to his mother, who came to visit him in Palmyra, that he received back the Urim and Thummim. So he was enabled to translate again. This was in uh, roughly October of 1828, it would have been. Because he had forfeited the Urim and Thummim when he lost 116 pages. He got him back to receive a revelation and then returned them right then. And then he got it back again in September, again on that September 22nd time frame. He received the Urim and Thummim back. And his mother said when she went down to um, Harmony to visit, she saw the, the wooden box that he kept them in. And she later said that when um, this would have been in late May, when Joseph Smith got the um, commandment to write to David Whitmer to come pick him up, she said he applied the Urim and Thummim into his eyes to look on the plates. And instead of having the words of the book, he got this commandment to write to David Whitmer. So as late as May of 1829, when he was in Harmony, he was still using the Urim and Thummim. And he was applying them to his eyes. He was not looking at a stone and a half. That's why... Uh, uh, both Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith always said he translated with the Urim and Thummim. Now, getting back to Emma and David, why would they talk so much about the stone and the hat? In the first place, they didn't talk about it until decades later. But what, it, what was happening in the, the mid to late 1800s in the press in the East Coast was the explanation for the Book of Mormon was a Solomon Spaulding theory. That was, the, I think in 1842, there were four or five books published that talked about Solomon Spaulding theory. And it was such a significant issue that when Oliver Cowdery rejoined the church in 1848, I think it was, and he bore his testimony of the translation, he specifically said Spaulding did not write the book and Sidney Ridgen did not write the book. But that was, it was that big of an issue that he had to address it. So, the, the gist of the Spalding theory, for those who may not be familiar with it, was that there was a man named Solomon Spalding who lived in Ohio in the early 1800s. And he had purportedly written a novel about the origin of the mound builders, which was he sent down to Philadelphia to get published and it was never published. 
Sidney Rigdon had some lived near that area in Philadelphia, and some people claimed that he got access to the manuscript and added a bunch of Christian sermons to it, and then gave it to Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith just read it off as the Book of Mormon. That's the Solomon Spaulding theory. Well, the, a key point of the Spaulding theory was that Joseph Smith was reading or dictating from behind a screen or a curtain, so nobody could see the plates or the manuscript that he was reading from, if you believe the Solomon Spaulding theory. For David and Emma, it was critical to refute the Spaulding theory. And the only way they could do that was to say there was no curtain there. He had, there was, he had nothing to read from, no manuscript to read from. And so, and which was true for the demonstration that they saw. So based on that demonstration, they could testify truthfully that Joseph looked at a stone and a hat, dictated, and the scribes wrote it down. But that doesn't explain why there are other accounts of a screen being drawn or a curtain. And so it, the way I interpret all this evidence, and it, it gets into the weeds real fast <laughs> if you're not careful. And I document, I have this book, A Man That Can Translate, it goes through all these references and stuff. But, but the, the gist of it is, that whenever someone was possibly present, other than Oliver Cowdery, who presumably saw the Yerman Thummim because he tried to translate, anyone other than him, they'd have to draw a curtain cross because they were commanded not to show those items to other people. But that gave credence to the Spalding theory. So David Whitmer and Emma had to say there was nothing there, there's no curtain, no manuscript. And if you read all their accounts, they emphasize those points. But the way I interpret the evidence, all they were talking about was the demonstration when Joseph was reciting Isaiah from memory. By the way, as far as reciting Isaiah from memory, and I've, I've relied a lot on Royal Skousen's work on this, where he's compared the King James to the Isaiah chapters. And you can see in, in some of the Isaiah chapters in 1 Nephi and a few of them in 2 Nephi, there are substantive changes. Joseph would add a complete verse. He would um, re move verses around and restructure it and so on. And to me, that sounds like translation. But there's four or five chapters of Isaiah and Second Nephi that are inexplicable. They have a dropped word here, maybe an inverted word or two here, and a, a missing line. Nothing that makes sense in terms of a translation. But it does make sense in terms of someone reciting from memory. Because it's very difficult to recite perfectly from memory. It can be really close. But if you dropped a word or two, so that's why I think it, it was recited from memory. That's a, another long-winded answer, but. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate this. And I think it's important that people hear what you have to say because you're basically taking all the uh, traditional objections to the translation process and also, you know, and you're, you're, you're basically saying, well, you know, there's a good explanation for this. You've delved yeah. into the weeds. You've really taken the time to really mm -hmm. understand the times and the places, uh, you know, just with the Jonathan Edwards and then with the Searstone, you know, I have to say that, you know, I, I'm just trying to come across this as open-minded as I can. And I want, I want you to, you know, all of our guests who are going to be coming on, this is what it's about is you having the yeah. opportunity to say where you're coming from. And, yeah. I, you know, and I, I think that so often when we come to, uh, areas of disagreement, when it comes to politics, but also with religion, it gets so heated and yeah. so divisive. <laughs> and we and we can't have a conversation right and that's what this is about is an evangelical who has no uh you know fight in this game you know i'm just i'm just you know i'm just here to be a, a, a somewhat neutral observer although i do have a slight bias in your favor 
but I, um, but I just feel it's important that you come on and you have this conversation and present your case, which I think mm -hmm. is so important that we are able to have these conversations in a respectful dialogue. And, and, I, and I think it's important that because there's a lot of people out there, a lot of my people are community of Christ and mm -hmm. progressive Mormons, more, more liberal. And I want them to know that, you know, there is a sophisticated side to the Orthodox position within Mormonism as well. And, and, and that that should be respected and engaged in a respectful way as well. I, I, I should qualify that just a little bit because this sure. what I'm saying is not exactly Orthodox. <laughs> well, no, but I'm saying when you're coming from a, you're coming from an Orthodox yeah. worldview. Right? Right, right. So you're okay, a, you're enough. a believer. Right. And you take right. the Book of Mormon as scripture. And yeah. so you're it's an apologetic of some kind, but it's based on scholarship. Right. Yeah. And then and so well, my basic approach is I, I embrace all the evidence, all mm -hmm. the data, but I don't accept anybody's conclusions, um, inferences, conclusions, assumptions. Yeah. And, and the, the, the I mentioned before the Royal Scousing thing where you just for no reason assumed it all came from the King James Bible. There's no reason to assume that because Joseph had an intimate acquaintance with these other ministers who quoted the Bible and so on. So that's, and that's what I hope people understand whether evangelical, LDS, whatever, is that there's actual evidence and then there's interpretations and assumptions. And when you practice law, that's what it's all about, right? There's, there's physical evidence of some sort. There's hearsay evidence. There's all different types of evidence. But you take all that evidence and then you construct a narrative that fits the evidence. And that's what I've been trying to do here, because in my view, the, this, the stone in the hat, which I call Sith, the stone in the hat narrative does not hold up. And nor does the, the idea that the entire Book of Mormon came from the Urban Thummim. Neither one of those narratives hold up. But the, what I'm proposing does explain all the evidence. And it's the same with the geography and the Jonathan Edwards and all that stuff. Well, I'll tell you, I think you were able to make your case uh, pretty good today, Counselor. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I, I also want to emphasize, I'm not trying to persuade anybody. No. I just share my ideas. That's right. They're out there. And yep. I like it because the more I, I pursue all this, the clearer everything becomes. And, and that's why, you know, when I read something like the CES letter and they're complaining about biblical language in the Book of Mormon, I say, well, what would you expect if it was translated, right? It, it, think about that. Any book you've read could either be a translation or an original work. The only way you know is what the author said. And, and you have, uh, there's lots of plagiarism that takes place, you know, and, and a person could claim someone else's writings as their own, even though it's plagiarized. But even worse is if you translate something from another uh, language into your own language and claim you wrote it. Right. And that's what the, the critics are saying is that even though Joseph said he translated, he didn't really. Well, the only one would know was Joseph Smith. And he could, this is the thing that a lot of people overlook. If Joseph Smith had really taken words off a stone in a hat, he could just as easily have said that as if he said he translated. Because it was just as divine in that sense if it came through inspiration or revelation as if he translated it. So why would he say he translated it unless he actually translated it? And I know there's a, there's a theme today going around in LDS circles that, well, the, the manner of translation doesn't matter whether it came from a stone in the hat or whether he translated the plates, doesn't matter, it's the word of God anyway. And I completely reject that because the issue is, was Joseph Smith honest or not? 
did he tell what actually happened or not? And if he said he translated it, but he didn't, then that undermines everything else he, he said. So, plus, you know, by the way, I, I think it's um, poor apologetics to say that the words of the Book of Mormon are evidence of its divinity because of how many people it's influenced, because other books have influenced far more people that contradict the Book of Mormon. And that's why, I, for me, it's important to understand how the Book of Mormon fulfills Christian um, ideals or anticipation as expressed by Jonathan Edwards and others, because ultimately it boils down to faith and a, a choice to have faith. And I think we've, we've erected a lot of barriers for, for evangelicals and other Christians to accept the Book of Mormon by insisting that it's a missionary tool. So that's kind of my soapbox, I guess. <laughs> no, I, no, I appreciate that because that's kind of where I like to be that in that intersection. Yeah, you know, we're, we're, yeah, I like the cross pollinization. I like the idea that Jonathan Edwards is in the Book of Mormon, you know, and I right. think evangelicals will like that too. And I, I think, think that so I think that that's something you know we just got to look at it through a different set of eyes, and let's just try to break down these barriers and blinders that we have, and let's just try to engage each other. And yeah. you know, I you you can learn from me, I can learn from you, and have that openness and have that dialogue. And I think that's right. so fundamental. Now I know your time. Is precious yeah, to you, and right. I appreciate everything. I just wanted to say thank you so much. Now I did wear my shirt here. It says Oregon on it because you're a big fan. You, nice you the, so I did that in honor of your <laughs> of your current abode, and okay. I just want to thank you so much. So I'm going to uh, provide links to uh, the trans uh, a man that can translate. That's the name of the book. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to provide right. a link to that, and then um, we're going to also. Um, provide a link once your Jonathan Edwards book comes out. Now, roughly speaking, when is the Jonathan Edwards book looking to come out? Well, let's see, this is by the end of May for sure. Okay, very good. So, so, so th that's great. So that will be coming down the pike soon. Uh, so we'll have a link to that and then a link to your uh, Moroni's America website. Uh, Jonathan, uh, greatly appreciate this. Um, thank Love you so too. much. Thank you, Stephen. It's been fun talking with you and I'm sure we'll have more in the future. Thanks, Jonathan. Don't forget to like and subscribe and have yourself a great day. Okay.